Hello and welcome back to Joe's Art History Bite Size, small manageable podcast episodes which sees me, Joe McLaughlin, your host and resident art historian, deep dive into specific artwork or artist in 10 minutes or less. This week we're doing a whistle-stop tour into the work and life of British superstar painter Bridget Riley. Let's get started. Born in 1931 in London, Bridget Riley spent most of her childhood growing up in Lincolnshire until the outbreak of World War II, where her father, who was a member of the Territorial Army, was mobilised. And during the war, her mother decided to evacuate the family out to Cornwall. During these war years, Riley spent most of her time growing up in a seaside town of Padstow, where she had a great deal of freedom and she quotes this as being the source to her artistic inspiration later in life, saying that she would spend hours and hours in the countryside roaming and looking at cloud formations and the shifting light throughout the day. Fast forwarding to a little bit later on in life, she received a formal artistic training, studying first at Goldsmiths College and then on to the Royal College of Art in London, where she graduated in 1955, where her fellow students were people like Peter Blake and Frank Albark. Now, what's very interesting here is when you think of Bridget Riley, you think she has this absolutely mammoth career, which took off very early on in life. But actually, after leaving college, she had a bit of a hiatus for lots of different reasons. She nursed her father for a little while. She herself was also sick and was in hospital for about six months, I believe. That's what I've read. And she then decided to become a teacher in Harrow. So she was teaching for two years and then took a job as a commercial illustrator. So it wasn't until her 30s that her career as an artist really took off. Now, Riley's mature style and style that we know her for now developed in the 1960s. But before that, she was very much experimenting and trying to find, as all young artists do, their style. And she happened across a George Seurat painting called The Bridge at Coupevoie. And this for Riley completely blew colour theory and combination out of the water. So she meticulously copied Seurat's work, thinking that she would probably become a pointillist. Now, Seurat is the most famous pointillist. And pointillism, if you don't know what that is, is essentially it's lots of small dots of pure colour that are put onto a canvas. And up close don't really make sense. But the second you step back, they all begin to make sense and the image becomes complete. And it was this Bridget Coupevoie that really sort of set Riley off in experimenting with her style. Um, and I find this very interesting because I didn't know this about Bridget Riley and it's so far away from what she does and what she's known for. But I think it's very important that even if just as a lesson to any artist listening, everybody takes their time to find their style. Now, it wasn't until she started applying this to her own subjects that she realised that just it wasn't capturing something for her. There was a mood that she wasn't getting in her landscapes. And it was after a trip to Italy with a former partner that she came back and really started to explore abstraction and optical art. It was actually after a bit of a breakup that she really tried to take it out on a canvas one day and she painted it all black and then she said she came down in the next morning and was like oh it's not capturing my feelings but there's something there and then she played around with it and then that's where she began to create these beautiful op art pieces that we know and love from Bridget Riley today and again this was in 
1960, 1961. So a full five, six years after she left college, she was still experimenting and finding her style. And the story goes that in 1962, she had her first streak of luck when sheltering from a rainstorm in a gallery. She was offered a show after getting to know the gallerist there. And when the show opened later that year, it was met to wide critical acclaim across London. I've got a wonderful quote here from a programme that I've been listening to today on Bridget. And this is a small extract on the artist speaking herself on her paintings and what she was trying to do during that time. My paintings are not concerned with the romantic legacy of expression, nor with fantasies, concepts or symbols. I draw from nature. I work with nature, although in completely new terms. For me, nature is not landscape, but the dynamism of visual forces, an event rather than an appearance. These forces can only be tackled by treating color and form as ultimate identities, freeing them from all descriptive or functional roles. So what she means by this here is that she is exploring the feeling of a situation or her experiences rather than visually depicting them as realistically as possible and essentially that's what she's trying to do in her artwork and her titles for her paintings give that away particularly in this period. I find Bridget Riley really quite impressive because her work like anything that looks simple is actually incredibly complicated to put together and these abstract pieces, some of which I'll, I'll share on my Instagram, are exceptionally complicated and intricate and they're all hand-drawn, which is just incredible. Hand-drawn and hand-painted. Now, as I said, she exploded onto the art scene in 1962 and took London by storm. And this coincided with the rise of op art experiences. Now, op art, if you're wondering what that is, is optical art. It was a rise in the public's want and desire for psychedelic optical illusions and experiences. And Bridget just so happened to coincide very beautifully with the rise of these experiences and interest within the general public. Now, she wasn't inspired by this, but it was just weirdly godlike timing, if you ask my opinion. And she was so successful that the big dogs came calling. That's right. In 1965, this is just three years after she's taken the London art scene by storm, or the British art scene by storm, rather. In 1965, Riley made her debut in the United States. The Museum of Modern Art had an exhibition exploring op art, and it was called The Repossessive Eye. And they loved Riley's work so, so much that they actually put her work on the cover of the exhibition catalogue and all the exhibition posters and advertising that they took out, which for that to happen to a young British artist in New York at that time, a female British artist at that time is just unbelievable. However, it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. Op art was something that was taking the world by storm throughout the early 60s. And it was leaking into television culture, it was leaking into fashion, illustration, you name it. And it said that when Riley touched down in New York, she was slightly taken aback and disgusted by the fact that 
she'd be driving through New York and she would see essentially reproductions of her paintings on dresses and pieces of fabric and bags and things like that because essentially her ideas had been ripped off by designers and turned into high-end fashionable clothings and the story goes that she tries to she tries to actually sue a designer when she gets to New York because essentially she was like this is a rip-off of my my paintings and she was told tough luck and that she couldn't sue for Riley, I've got a quote here saying that she said, it will take at least 20 years before anyone looks at my paintings seriously again. I've got another fabulous quote from Riley on the importance of optical art and why it was important and what she's trying to do. So I'm going to play that now for you. Rhythm and repetition are at the root of movement. They create a situation within which the most simple, basic forms start to become visually active. By massing them and repeating them, they become more fully present. Repetition acts as a sort of amplifier for visual events which, seen singly, would hardly be visible. But to make these basic forms release the full visual energy within them, they have to breathe, as it were, to open and close, or to tighten up and then relax. A rhythm that's alive has to do with changing pace, and feeling how the visual speed can expand and contract, sometimes go slower and sometimes go faster. The whole thing must live. So there you have it. And I think what's very important to mention at this stage, because I think I failed to mention it, until when Riley burst onto the scenes in the 1960s, when we think of her work now, it's very colourful and bold, but actually all of her work was in black and white throughout the 60s. She really didn't start introducing colour until 1967. So her whole success to this point has been a monotone palette. And she very, very slowly starts to introduce colour back into her work. And this is something that, again, she looked back to Surah and Monet and the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists here. And essentially taking lessons from the greats that have come before her and I've got a final beautiful beautiful quote that I'm going to share with you now about what the impressionist did in terms of colour and what she was trying to achieve. Of course colour as light and colour as paint behave in quite different ways. It was artists like Monet and Seurat who taught us to make paint behave as light does by dividing up the colour on the canvas so that it works optically only mixing in the actual process of seeing it. Seeing it is when the painting starts to live. That is when it begins. Everything else is like setting the stage before the curtain goes up on the drama itself. Oh, I just, I love that so much. I think it's always so brilliant to hear an artist speak about their influences and their thought processes. And I actually think Bridget Early is so what I've been reading about her she's so intelligent and so clued up on her art history she really understands people that have come before her she's learnt her lessons from them and applies that to her very very contemporary pieces and again I just think it shows you that art history is so important because it does impact today now I'm going to take you on a very very quick whistle stop tour after this so unfortunately Riley's success in America didn't last because the 
obstacle art very much fell out of favour. But in Britain, she still very much maintained her popularity. She represented Britain at the 1986 Venice Biennale, along with Philip King for the British Pavilion. And she even won the International Award for Painting. And it was the first time a woman had won it, which is the beginning of lots of accolades achieved by Riley throughout her career. In 1981, Riley had a trip to Egypt and she was completely moved by the dynamic use of colour of the ancient Egyptian art that she was seeing when she was there. And she was completely entranced by the fact that they used very minimal amounts of colour, three, four, five, that really carried through and told a story. And she then came back to the UK and applied what was then known as her Egyptian colour palette. And that is kind of what you see in her art from sort of the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s. Riley actually took on lots of very big public commissions. Um, what I love is that she did a lot of these commissions within hospital wards. So she's done commissions for the Royal Liverpool Hospital and she's done commissions for several London hospitals. And this for her was a way of giving back to hospitals as she spent quite a lot of time in them when her mother was sadly passing away and she wanted to give something back to the healthcare system who had looked after her family so well but had found these places quite clinical and not very outward looking it was very sort of sterile and inward looking and I actually think that's something that's very important about hospitals today there's lots of brilliant art programs that encourage creativity and essentially act as distraction and motivation to patients and staff that work within them. And it's lovely to see that Riley was someone who was so pioneering in her passion for placing artworks in these sorts of places. Now, she actually fell out of favour a little bit in the early 1990s, but had a bit of a renaissance at the end of the 1990s into the 2000s. And she's just very much become untouchable since then. She's just incredible. And she continues to produce art to this day. And she has several locations and studios across the world. She works in London and Cornwall and on occasion France, so I'm led to believe. She continues to have large scale ret retrospectives across the world. And if you ever find yourself in London and take a trip into the National Gallery, which is free to visit, you will find um, her most recent large scale public art installation slash painting called Messenger, which is now a permanent artwork within the National Gallery in London. Now, Bridget Riley has such a fascinating career that 10, 15 minutes, however long this episode is going to be, doesn't do it justice. So if you've enjoyed learning and having a very whistle-stop tour on Bridget Riley, and you would like me to do a full-length episode in the next season or a forthcoming season of Joe's Art History podcast, where I can spend 30, 40, 50 minutes even diving into Riley and some of her key pieces of her career and some of the key moments within art history, contemporary art history that she has been privy to and has influenced then do let me know you have been listening to joe's art history podcast bite size small manageable episodes which sees me joe mclaughlin your resident host and art historian deep dive into a specific artwork or artist in 10 minutes or less if you have enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like, rate and subscribe as it helps other listeners find us. If you want to support the podcast, why not leave us a review or tell someone you know who may enjoy listening all about it.
If you would like to support the future of the podcast, please consider purchasing and gifting me a book from my Amazon wishlist included in the show notes below. If you would like to get in touch, please feel free to do so. It'd be lovely to hear from you. You can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can find me via Instagram, which is at joesarthistory or you can search for my name, Joe McLaughlin, and you'll find me that way too. Finally, I've been your host and your resident art historian, Joe McLaughlin, and thank you so much for listening. Keep learning and remember, art is for all, even in bite-sized editions. See you next time. Bye.